You're listening to the Racial Equity and Hunger National Learning Network podcast. In each episode, we seek to understand what racial equity is, how it relates to hunger and hunger relief efforts, and discover practical ways we can implement anti-hunger strategies with a racial equity lens during COVID-19. Welcome back, everyone. You are tuning into the podcast on race, COVID-19, and hunger. If you have not already done so, go back and listen to our other episodes on African-American and Indigenous communities. In our last episode, we focused on Latino communities. In this episode, we will continue to go deeper. My name is Monica Gonzalez, co-chair of the Racial Equity, Hunger, and National Learning Network. I'm honored to be with all of you here today. So here I have with me today, our founding co-chair, Marlisa Gamblin. Marlisa? Hey, Monica. (laughs) Hey. I just have to say, I'm really happy to have you uh, lead this, uh, lead the seventh episode that we've had at this point um, and the second episode within looking at race, COVID-19 and hunger within Latino communities. So. Um, I'm just super happy to be here shoulder to shoulder with you uh, doing this. And also for our viewers, I just want to second what Monica said. If you have not already tuned in, go to racialequityhunger.org and listen to our last few few episodes. They're great. Yeah, they really are great. And so, you know, we had two dynamic Latinas in the last episode who shared with us the importance of looking at history as well as centering the community. And two, these are two very concrete ways to successfully apply racial equity. But today I'm really excited about looking at the opposite ends of the food system to see how Latino leaders are working in these areas and have insights for how um, we can think about food and also to learn from their experiences. And finally, to promote racial equity, especially during this time of COVID. So on one end, we have the perspective of the farm workers who are bringing food to our table. Um, They're right at the front end of that and and really vulnerable during this time. And um, also we have someone at the other end of the food spectrum who is really looking at food as a strategy and a mechanism for economic empowerment. And so, um, you know, each of them are really approaching this differently. So I think this is just gonna be a really exciting conversation um, to see both perspectives. Um, You know, again, the farm workers who are right at the front end, um, who really do um, bring our food to our table. And then, you know, also the perspective of people who prepare the food and help to nourish communities. Um, So I think this is going to be really exciting. And I'm just really excited to hear more from our guests and to learn from them. I agree, Monica. I think our viewers will be learning a lot in this episode. So do you want to just go ahead and get started? Let's get started.
So I'm really excited to have with us today Leonel Perez, um, who is with the Coalition of Amakali Workers um, located in Florida, and excited to have with us Uriel, who's going to um, translate um, with us today's interview. So welcome and thank you. Bienvenidos. Um, and thank you very much. Thank you as well. Gracias. So why don't we go ahead and get started? Um, I think first, I, I want to learn more about the Amakali workers and learn more about how this coalition um, was established and and if you could just tell us more about the community um, itself. Uh, pues sí, Leo, lo que está preguntando ella, si puedes compartir un poquito más, es un poquito más de contexto, historia sobre la coalición, mm -hmm. qué es lo que hace la coalición, y también un poquito sobre la comunidad de Imocali, ¿verdad? Que, que es algo como eh, diferente, ¿verdad? O, o único, ¿verdad? De esa comunidad. Sí, uh, hola a todos. Uh, yo soy Leo y soy parte de la coalición de trabajadores de Imocali, una organización que lucha para mejorar los salarios y eliminar los abusos dentro de la industria agrícola. So, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Leo. Um, I am one of the farm worker staff members with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. I work with the coalition. Um, uh, for the most part, the work of the coalition encompasses um, working to attain better wages uh, for the farm worker community here in Immokalee, as well as to eliminate abuses that farm workers tend to face uh, when doing this agricultural work. Immokalee is based on the southwest of Florida donde la mayor parte de los trabajadores pues trabajan en la industria de, del tomate y otros vegetales. Yeah, um, Immokalee is a small farm worker town based in southwest Florida, of which most of the people um, that uh, live here um, work in the agricultural industry. Um, and one of the big industries um, is the tomato plant, uh, the picking of, of, of tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Y nuestra comunidad forman una comunidad mexicana, guatemaltecos y haitianos, donde una comunidad que es multicultural, el español es el segundo idioma de la mayoría de nosotros, y pues se enfrentan condiciones malas básicamente en la industria agrícola, y creo que fue la razón por qué la coalición nace en los 93 para eliminar esos tipos de abusos. Yeah, and so um, the Immokalee community is a multicultural community in that it includes a lot of people from different countries, specifically countries like Mexico, Guatemala, and Haiti. For the most part, Spanish is a second language for, uh, for the people based here um, in, in Immokalee. Um, but to give you some context as to why the coalition was started, a lot of people that are based here or working um, and live here in Immokalee face a lot of abusive conditions, a lot of problems um, in the agricultural industry. And for that reason, uh, the coalition was founded in 1993 to help eliminate those abuses. Donde empiezan los trabajadores a organizarse de cómo eliminar los abusos y cómo mejorar el salario. Porque ellos estaban recibiendo un salario muy bajo 
y no era por hora, simplemente fue por la cantidad de producción que hacía cada trabajador. Yeah, and, and so for the most part, the coalition was created to address these issues of sub-poverty wages and um, abusive conditions in the workplace. Um, at that time, um, workers were for the most part getting paid not an hourly wage, but a piece rate uh, by the amount of production, essentially by the amount of buckets that you pick. Una cueta 32 libras, bueno, en esos tiempos pagaban de 40 centavos. De, yeah. una, de 32 libras que pesa básicamente los tomates. Mm -hmm. At that time, um, a 32-pound bucket of tomatoes, if you can imagine that, a big red 32-pound bucket, uh, was on average getting paid 40 cents. A worker would get paid 40 cents for picking that. Entonces no había un salario fijo, no había un trabajo fijo para los trabajadores. De ahí... En Imokali hubo muchas protestas, huelgas de hambre para un diálogo con los rancheros. Yeah, and so there wasn't a set wage. Um, there wasn't a set, a set work hours. Um, and so for that reason, the coalition began to organize protests, organize demonstrations, demanding a dialogue with growers, the people who owned the farms where these farm workers were working at. No, I, you know, I have great um, appreciation for the farm workers um, in my own family, my abuela, my abuelitos um, also um, came to this country and, and picked in the fields of California. And so I have a great appreciation for the backbreaking work that this is and, and the role of the farm worker to put food on the tables of, of even people like me. And so, you know, as I'm seeing how this pandemic is doing um, so much um, damage and having such a significant impact, especially on the Latino community um, and the lack of... Um, PPE or protective gear um, provided to farm workers. Um, I'm wondering how the coalition is working to help ensure the safety and, and health of the farm workers in Amakali. Mm -hmm. en, en esos tiempos, básicamente no había ninguna protección, pero la campaña fue cambiando como en el 2000 nace la campaña por comida justa porque vimos que grandes compradores podían apoyar a estos trabajadores y apoyar a los rancheros y de ahí nace lo que es la campaña por comida justa en el 2010 donde vienen nuevos derechos para los trabajadores. Uh -huh. Pero también Leo ella pregunta en términos de, de ahora, ¿verdad? ¿Qué uh -huh. está haciendo la coalición ahora para proteger? Pero puedo traducir. So, um, so just to finish off the point that Leo was mentioning. So in the past, there wasn't really much that could be done by the coalition to protect farm workers um, from abusive conditions. Um, it was as a result, really, of uh, the work, uh, what we call today the Campaign for Fair Food, where we started partnering up with multinational food corporations, demanding that they um, work with us to help uh, create better protections for farm workers, that we've really been able to see a big difference. But Leo's going to speak now to more specifically what you were asking, Monica, which is more about what is the coalition doing right now 
to protect farm workers. Entonces, Leo, si puedes hablar un poquito sobre qué es lo que está haciendo la coalición ahorita para proteger a trabajadores durante esta pandemia. Sí, en ahorita totalmente nosotros cambiamos nuestra campaña, empezamos a enfocar a proteger básicamente nuestra comunidad de todo lo que está pasando y lo primero que hicimos es a promocionar básicamente crear tantos uh, volantes ir a pegar cómo los trabajadores pueden protegerse eso fue al principio donde fuimos a tocar pues puertas varios de nuestras compañeras aquí en la comunidad empezaron a hacer mascarillas y distribuir a, a los trabajadores Mm -hmm. Yeah, so since the, the start of the pandemic, really our work, which is typically, as Leo mentioned, um, campaigns to work to, you know, provide better protections in the workplace, that has been put to a stop. And we have been mostly focusing on how to best um, ensure that this, this farm worker community of Immaculate has the resources necessary to ensure that they are safe during this pandemic. And so in the early uh, weeks, and by early weeks, I mean late March, early April, some of the work that was being done was, for example, going around and doing outreach in the community, right? So putting up flyers, putting up bulletins all around the community to spread awareness and education about what is it that you need to do um, in order to, to best protect yourself. So we were going not only to uh, parts that are center of town, but going with other fellow staff members of the coalition around to all of the parts um, around town to make sure that everyone was having the information necessary, um, as well as distributing um, information. Leo mentioned that uh, some of the farm worker women's group started sewing some uh, masks. And so part of the work that we were doing as well was helping disseminate or pass out these masks free of charge to the community as well. Porque sabemos que nuestra comunidad es muy vulnerable para esto. La mayor parte de los trabajadores viven entre 5, 6, hasta 8, 10 compañeros en una sola traila. Mm -hmm. And the main reason we, we started doing this is because our community is ven very vulnerable to this pandemic, um, specifically in terms of housing conditions. Um, so most farm workers live in trailer homes where there is six, seven, eight, up to ten people living in one single trailer home. Entonces, y la mayoría veces trabajan en diferentes compañías o en diferentes lugares. Pero en cada tarde todos se reúnen, todos tienen que cocinar en el mismo lugar. Entonces sabíamos que iba a afectar fuerte esto a nuestra comunidad y teníamos que tener un, crear otra campaña básicamente de cómo proteger a la comunidad de Imocal. Yeah, and so out of those six, seven, eight people living in one home, uh, they could be working in six, seven, eight different uh, farms and different places. And so we started seeing that this made our community extremely vulnerable because in the end of the day, in the end of the workday, these people that have been in contact with different people that have been working in different places, all come back home, all eat in the same place, all shower in the same place. And so that's one of the things that we started sort of really sounding an alarm about why the housing conditions made farm workers more vulnerable to this pandemic, given that um, 
you know, run of the mill family. And so it, in, in the early, again, in, in late March, early April, we started a, another campaign uh, to address that and talking about that vulnerability. When we last left off, we were learning about how COVID-19 is negatively impacting Latino farm workers. Let's learn more. Sí, hubo impactó muy fuerte a nuestra comunidad porque básicamente bajó mucho lo que es el trabajo. Muchos de los rancheros tomaron precaución también, dejaron muchas cosechas a que se secaran en, en el fil por lo mismo. Los trabajadores pues se quedaron sin, sin trabajo y no hay otra manera más que salir y buscar otro estado. Yeah, and so to answer directly to that, um, COVID-19 has impacted the farm worker community here in Immokalee significantly. Um, we can start by saying that it's impacted the work itself. Um, so a lot of farms have had to uh, either cut or completely stop um, the work that they're doing, essentially allowing vegetables and, and the harvest to rot in the fields. Um, and a lot of this is due, um, again, um, to, to this COVID, right, um, and, and to, to workers getting sick. And, and again, I would add also to companies sort of closing their orders and stuff. And so what that has meant for some farm workers is that they have lost their jobs and they have had to move or look for another way of, of, of making a living. I would really like to ask another question because that makes me wonder about the food security of those families and how um, they're able to feed their own families and themselves. I can only imagine that it's been incredibly difficult and these families are not only struggling with income, but they're also struggling with food security. Can you tell us if that really is the case for for the Immokalee community as well as it is for other communities? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Entonces, Leo, eh, pues algo que mencionaste, ¿verdad? Dado que dijiste que la gente está perdiendo el trabajo, eso la hizo pensar a ella, ¿verdad? Que eso pues eh, obviamente afectar a la persona económicamente debería también estar, estar afectando, ¿verdad? La seguridad de comida, ¿verdad? O sea, si alguien no está ganando un cheque, ¿verdad? Está afectando el dinero que está ganando y, 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 y qué tipo de comida pueden comer, ¿verdad? Si es que no, no hay, ¿verdad? Dinero o no hay trabajo, ¿verdad? Entonces ella mencionó que si puedes hablar un poquito de cómo está afectando COVID, ¿verdad? A esos trabajadores que han perdido su trabajo en términos de la comida. En muchos de los trabajadores, especialmente los que tuvieron uh, resultados positivos o lo que sea, estuvieron enfermos, básicamente sí afectó. Y, y nuestra comunidad de Imokali también es una comunidad que, que puede ver a otros donde... Muchos llevaban comida a otros y muchas y siempre Imokali es una comunidad donde reciba mucho. Uh, muchos bancos de comida vienen a destruir. Vimos esto y nosotros estábamos trabajando con, con una misión, Misión Peniel, donde mandábamos a ellos a dejar comida donde le hacía falta. Básicamente el enfoque de la coalición fue para la 
la comunidad qué es lo que se necesitaba sí, para proteger y para ayudarlos un, po un poquito, ¿va? porque eso fue difícil. Yeah, so, um, so to answer your question, um, we, we've definitely seen the loss of jobs and COVID-19 impact farm workers and their food security by way of obviously losing their jobs. Um, but this is nothing new for the Immokalee community. Um, as Leo was mentioning, um, food insecurity and food banks and organizations that help the farm worker community with uh, food needs, that has been long happening here in this community before COVID, right? And so what, if anything, what we have seen is that need just skyrocket, right? Um, as more workers are losing their jobs, so there's more of a need. And so one of the things that we've been doing is we've been partnering up uh, with a local church here, Mission Peniel is a church, it's a Presbyterian church here in the Immokalee community that has been helping in the distribution of food to families and uh, to the family members and to farm workers who have had a positive result. Um, and making sure that, um, you know, those people that have lost their jobs due to being sick through COVID, that they at least have some sort of um, help in, in terms of, of their food and, and, and not uh, have to fear, right, that just because they lost their job, they, they don't have food on their plates. Y también creo que esto, lo que hemos hecho, lo que hemos logrado, básicamente, muchos logros como nuevos derechos de los trabajadores, el derecho a ir a tomar agua, por ejemplo, pero también es un trabajo que se ha hecho parte de la campaña, donde también llevamos nuestra realidad con gente en diferentes universidades, con estudiantes y con iglesias. Básicamente fue el apoyo básicamente del consumidor en este sentido. Y so, you know, kind of add a little bit to what you mentioned, Monica. So a lot of the changes that we've been able to achieve here in our Immokalee community are really never before seen kind of rights and protections, things so basic as having access to clean water in the, in the fields were things that weren't a guaranteed in the past, but are, are now a guaranteed um, under the work uh, in, in, uh, of the coalition. But all of this really is a result of years of what we call the Campaign for Fair Food, where we bring the story and the narrative, we bring the farm workers directly to students. We go to universities and educate them about what farm workers are facing in the fields. We go to community organizations, um, educating them about what, uh, what the CIW is about. We go to churches and do the same thing as well. And so all of this sort of education about what's going on in the fields, how do you benefit from um, this abuse that farm workers um, are facing, has what uh, is what has made it possible to get what we call the consumer, right? All of us are consumers. All of us consume these products on the side of the farm worker, right? Um, and so letting the consumer know this is what's happening and asking the consumer to stand alongside farm workers. Yeah, and so by this education process, um, when we connected with consumers and shared our reality, um, the, the unfair sub-poverty wages that were getting paid, the abusive conditions that we're facing to put these produce um, on everyone's tables, 
um, consumers' eyes were opened. Um, people's eyes were open that, first of all, they were not aware of this, but also that this is unjust, right? Um, and so with the support of, of people, of students, of communities of faith, of community groups, we've been able to demand that multinational, uh, multi-billion dollar food corporations be held accountable and responsible for the conditions that farm workers face in the farms that supply um, these corporations. Y entonces, hoy en día, básicamente, un trabajador puede decir, no voy a trabajar porque estoy enfermo y no pierde su trabajo. Y no era como antes. Trabajamos con el 90% de la industria agrícola de tomate, con 13 o más uh, corporaciones que compran tomate en Florida. Yeah, and so today, as a result of this program, and bringing it back to COVID, if you are a sick farm worker, you have the right to, to get a sick day off um, and not lose your job, which was the norm in the past, right? If a farm worker was sick, um, they'll just get someone else to replace you, all right? And so, and this we've been able to do, again, through the partnership with now 14 uh, multi-billion uh, dollar food corporations that are now implementing what we call a, the Fair Food Program in about 90% of Florida's tomato industry. That's really, that's really impressive. And, and I think, you know, as you bring it back to COVID, that, you know, it really has provided um, the opportunity for them to have a sick day off, which seems um, like that would just be obvious that people would get a sick day off, right? Mm I guess the other piece I would just sort of um, acknowledge and, and, you know, want to make sure we don't lose sight of, and Marlisa, please jump in here, is the solidarity, um, building solidarity with other partners and consumers and students um, to help achieve that equity. Yeah, the racial equity piece, right? Because in many right. ways, what I'm hearing, and I think maybe, and this is more, maybe more of, um, of, of a question also too, for you too, Yuria, that, um, mm -hmm. that we, can you describe to our audience the role of, um, of, of, of your organization in really practicing racial equity as you're walking in solidarity with, right, um, Immokalee farm workers. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so I, I think I have to start off by saying that um, we need to understand sort of the history of agriculture and how it's still, um, how it looks today, right? So the history of agriculture in the South in the United States is, is, is one plagued with slavery of, of Black um, folks, right, um, here in the South. And that since uh, the centuries or decades since then, um, it has shifted its practices, but there are still a lot of abuse and a lot of mistreatment that is happening to mostly now people of color 
um, uh, indigenous or immig uh, immigrants from other countries and such. And so there's already been a history of sort of racial or racism, one would say, right, in the agricultural system sort of embedded in it in a, in a way. Um, and so I think um, the work of, of the Alliance for Fair Food, first and foremost, is to work alongside the coalition. I don't work for Leo, right? I work alongside with Lionel, right? We go to a presentation and he's the one that's sharing his reality. And I use my voice, I use my privilege, I use the access that I have to be able to help him to get that story to more people, right? But I, but I understand that that story is his story to tell, right? And so in a way, I think what the coalition does um, alongside the Alliance for Fair Food is something very practical, which is they recruit students or former students to go talk to other students, right? They recruit former faith leaders or people of faith to go talk to their church, right? To go talk to their people, right? And so in a, in a way, it's a really common sense thing because as a member, say, if you're you know university student, if you've gone through the education system, you know that much better uh, than a farm worker who hasn't gone through that, right? Or someone who say, you know, has grown up in a Presbyterian church. And, you know, if we're gonna go talk to a Presbyterian church, uh, why not speak to a Presbyterian leader? Because they know that much better, right? And so in a way, it has always been uh, a really practical approach by the coalition, but understanding that in reality, most of the answers to these problems do not lie in some outlier or in some room of academia, but most of the answers to these problems um, actually are within the farm workers themselves. They're the ones that face the abuse. They're the ones that know this reality and they're the ones that know the solution, but for the most part are often in a sort of disenfranchised position that they really can't implement those changes, right? But once you get people of faith, students, farm workers all on the same page, we have been able to implement that change. And, and, and I think the work of the coalition and the fair food program is a really good example of that. Well, something I appreciate about this is I think it gives a really solid example for our folks to see we, we, we're, we're helping our folks understand what racial equity is and how you can implement it. Right. Mm -hmm. And we keep, uh, sharing, you know, one of the main tenets, which is centering the voices, the needs, the leadership, the experience and the expertise of the people of color who are affected. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think this is a really, really solid example of how it's the Immokalee farm workers who are setting the agenda who are leading, who there is space being given for them to assert the agency and power that they're bringing to the table. And um, that's what, in, in just hearing you all, that's actually one of the things I'm like, okay, that should be a takeaway for anyone listening to this podcast is if I'm, ask yourself, okay, whose voice am I listening to? Whose voice is being centered? And if it's not communities of color in your community, then there needs to be a shift. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm.
with COVID, sort of bringing it back to that, um, we knew that COVID was going to impact our Immokalee community significantly, given the vulnerabilities of farm workers. Um, and so in early April, we launched a petition demanding the Department of Health and Governor DeSantis take steps um, to protect um, the farm worker communities of, of Immokalee, but also the broader Florida. Um, in those demands, we were demanding a temporary hospital, field hospital here in Immokalee, given that the closest hospital here is about an hour away. Um, we're also demanding um, um, PPE um, and protections uh, for farm workers as they go to the fields, given that they're essential workers, um, there's a lot of work continuing to go. Um, and yet, although they are essential workers, they don't necessarily have essential protections. Um, and the other demand was obviously testing and, and, and testing here for the community, for people that needed it in excess in an accessible way. Um, and so in early May, we managed to get a result from the governor where there was testing um, in early May. Great. I think my big takeaway from this is no ser callados, right? Um, we should not be quiet. Um, we should definitely speak up and, and work together um, to address the inequities. So, um, Marlisa, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add to that. I just want to say thank you. I really appreciate both of you. To me, in speaking with you, it just represents racial equity and motion. So if anyone needs like a good example of how that looks, um, to me, this is one of the perfect examples. Um, I really appreciate also, too, that, um, you know, in many ways, while we didn't necessarily explicitly ask, you know, policy responses, there were very clear policy responses, right? right? It's like, uh, we, uh, we need uh, worker protection, right? We need um worker safety we need uh, uh wages right that are not synonymous uh and tied back to slavery you know with the anti-black policy that's now impacting a lot of indigenous um and latino and still black right because um i know that there are mm -hmm. folks um who are farm workers who are black right who are impacting mm -hmm. people who are farm workers today um and to me, what that sounds like, you know, obviously this is amplified way more in COVID-19 during the season. What this suggests to me is that there needs to be a farm worker justice plan um, that is uh, that completely decolonizes how uh, that completely decolonizes how our farm workers um, are viewed, treated, supported, um, and that we remove it from the from the history of slavery, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that it's racially equitable because, like you said, the majority of farm workers in the United States today are still people of color, and that's how it was a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, three hundred years ago, so on and so forth.
with regards to the COVID-19 campaign that the Immokalee farm workers are doing, so we have a website, immokaleecovid19.org. All of that is together. There's no space, no hyphen. Um, and there you can find a petition that has over 45,000 signatures directed to Florida Governor DeSantis with the demands for protections uh, for the farm worker community here in Florida. There's also a lot of great resources in terms of um, an op-ed that came out on the New York Times talking about, you know, what is America to do, right, as 2.5 million farm workers get sick, right? And here in Florida specifically, and this is something that we didn't really touch on much, but in Florida, we were one of the states that were really quick to reopen, right? And and now we're seeing sort of the 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 result of that, which is that now we're sort of the epicenter of COVID in the world, right? We've been getting thousands and thousands of cases um, every day for the past couple of days, right? And farm workers, um, unfortunately, are, again, continuing to be very vulnerable to that and due to the wanting to uh, open up a state for economic reasons. But I guess all of that to say is farm workers are essential workers, but essential workers does not equal sacrificial workers. And we need to start respecting farm workers in that way. So That's right. Our essential workers cannot be expendable. Exactly. That's exactly right. I share Marlisa's, um, you know, appreciation for the both of you and for your leadership um, on behalf of the farm workers and all that you continue to do going forward and for sharing the resource with us so that we can make sure that we also join you and lending our voice in solidarity um, to your movement. So thank you. We just heard from the Coalition for Mockley Farmworkers and the Alliance for Fair Food. Stay tuned to hear more Latino leaders on how to promote racial equity during COVID-19. We have with us um, Patty Funegra, um, who is the Chief Executive Officer of La Cocina in Arlington, Virginia. Um, Fati is a leader um, in the community as well as nationally. She's a social entrepreneur um, in the area of food. Um, not only is she um, has created and um, established an amazing program in workforce development to help lift low-income people, but she is also serving and preparing food. And so as we think about food security, um, it's important that we recognize all of the leaders in this space that um, contribute so much to help people in need of food. So um, with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Patty to um, share a little bit more about what she does and what La Cocina is doing um, to help lift communities. Thank you so much, um, Monica, for the invitation and for that kind introduction. Um, I am the founder and CEO of La Cocina VA. It's a nonprofit organization in Arlington, Virginia, that I created back in 2014 after leaving the international development world, working for an international institu development institution here in Washington, D.C., 
very curious about the local needs of the Latino community. It didn't really take much time to realize the barriers and obstacles that our community faces um, to obtain better jobs, to receive um, vocational and technical education, to access healthier meals, to create their own small businesses. So all this around food. For La Cocina VA, food is the core, the agent for transformation. And through La Cocina VA, we are offering uh, workforce development in the culinary arts, uh, in uh, English and Spanish through bilingual programs certified by Northern Virginia Community College Workforce Development. Uh, we place uh, graduates in jobs, uh, in hotels and restaurants, part of a large portfolio of employer partners interested in um, hiring these newly trained uh, individuals uh, that jo to join their teams. We have also been uh, producing meals that have been donated to families in need in the Arlington area, families that live in affordable housing buildings, families and individuals that live in uh, homeless shelters. Our intention and our purpose to provide these meals was to, or still is, to uh, provide access to healthier meal options with large components of fruits and vegetables and um, inviting new communities, communities of new Americans, to learn about the products, the fruits and vegetables that are here in the region, here in the country, uh, to teach them ways to cook. There are many cases of immigrants, Latinos, and from other ethnicities that have seen a zucchini for the first time in their lives. They don't know how it tastes. They don't know how to prepare that and provide that to their families. So we uh, not only provide those meals, but also provide uh, menus and um, recipes and the actual products so they can prepare those meals as well. Uh, we have extended our services to um, provide small business, entrepreneur of color, uh, Latinos, but mostly Latinas, to help them with our new infrastructure to uh, open businesses, food-related businesses. So there are um, different services that we provide under the kitchen incubator program that we are about to start, um, providing these uh, communities of color these entrepreneurs with access to micro lending opportunities, with access to commercial infrastructure, industrial equipment, with mentorships, uh, mentor, mentors that provide mentorship uh, training on how to run a business in the United States, how to create their business plans and budgets. And finally, we guide them through the process to distribute their products. So it's a very ambitious a uh, project that we, as I mentioned, are about to start here in the Columbia Pike uh, corridor in Arlington, uh, tackling the, the barriers that we know entrepreneurs of color face, um, starting with the language barrier to understanding the, the financial system, how to access uh, that seed money that will help them create wealth start their own business, recover from the crisis, and even create jobs for their communities as well. I think that's really impressive. I, I don't even know where you find the time for all of this. 
um, you know, you started in a church basement and I know that you've built and are opening a state-of-the-art um, center in Arlington, Virginia. And you mentioned the access and helping um, new entrepreneurs of color access micro lending and um, everything that they need to be successful businesses. Can you share a little bit about your experience in terms of even some of the challenges that you faced as a woman of color um, trying to open up your own organization? What are some of the challenges that you faced? Yeah, thank you for that question. That's a very interesting question. Uh, definitely, it was an enormous challenge. And as you mentioned, we started in the basement of a church. Uh, but uh, I think my background, I believe my background in international development, the way that uh, monitoring and evaluation of results, indicators and, and metrics, are uh, considered when creating any project, I think that that had added, added value to our business model, to our proposal. So at the beginning, we were just an idea. We were just the passion of the founder talking to donors and potential partners. But I think that from the very beginning, our approach to tackle these issues in a collective way uh, bringing the um, higher education institution as a partner, having corporate uh, corporate groups from uh, the hospitality and food service industry uh, playing uh, an important role to create sustainable jobs, um, uniting efforts with other nonprofits that contributed to our work with wraparound services, with access to subsidized childcare, with access to transportation or mental health issues. So we um, approach this um, interesting opportunity to help our Latino community reaching out to the rest of the actors in the system. Uh, and I think that that has proven to be a model that is sustainable and long lasting uh, transformation for, uh, in our particular case, uh, workforce development and food assistance. And we are expecting that at this point, uh, our incubator and the small business development will uh, have uh, similar success based on utilizing Monica, the same approach of a human-centered design, understanding what are the issues that Latinos, and especially Latinas, face when putting all their knowledge and passion to create this delicious meal that have to be put in, in, um, out in the community to be offered to, for public consumption. So understanding what are the legalities of uh, the requirements for legal and fiscal uh, documents and processes that they need to follow. Uh, understanding how a budget works, how hiring uh, is, what uh, retention of talent represents, how to reach out to your customers, how to use social media as your tool for marketing. Uh, so there are so many different aspects that um, we have uh, learned through uh, pilot programs that we um, offered a couple of years ago to entrepreneurs. So we are now filling that gap, once again, coming with uh, a portfolio of partners, with 
mentors, with corporations, with experts in small business development, with uh, groups of community development financial institutions and, and faith-based organizations that are interested in lending uh, seed money, small uh, amounts of dollars to these entrepreneurs to put their ideas out and even more now than ever, how important it is to provide them with the, the resources to create financial stability, to regain financial stability, to generate income and to become the owners of their destinations and futures. You know, something that I really appreciate, first of all, I appreciate a lot of things that you said, but um, something that stood out to me that I want to reinforce is um, racial equity practices that you mentioned. So with racial equity, we know that uh, in applying this lens, the first tenet is to center the needs, the leadership, and the expertise of the people of color um, who are being impacted. And in this particular context, you've mentioned that that's primarily Latinas, right? And that uh, when we've when you've centered them, right, then centering the needs, right, obviously is also making sure that you're also making room for uh, for their voices, right? So that it would make sense then that they're that you're covering the whole person in terms of transportation, because clearly they, uh, you know, when centering their needs and their leadership, they realize, okay, well, uh, this is what I need, right? Uh, based on, uh, you know, housing segregation that we have, uh, based on race and so on and so forth. There's transportation issues, right? But there's also uh, childcare. Um, childcare issues in terms of needing that support, right? Um, and other things too that you mentioned, but I just wanted to underscore that because um, I think that's something that our service providers uh, should also be taking away with them as they're hearing, uh, hearing you that uh, centering the needs um, of, of people of color will result, um, will require rather a holistic approach because we experience racism at every different part, right, of our, of our life. So if we're really going to be able to um, be centered in that way, that also requires the, the full person, right, our full personhood to be, to be supported. So I just wanted to, to, to thank you for that piece. And then the second, piece is um, the wealth building piece because so many times I think a lot of service providers are kind of stuck in this charity model but what I'm hearing from you is a justice model. While we are uh, aiming to um, to do at the new center, which by the way, the name of the new center is the Zero Barriers Training and Entrepreneurship Center. So the intention and the concept behind the name is that we are expecting that every client 
that crosses the doors of our center will see their issues, barriers, and obstacles either mitigated, reduced, or eliminated uh, based on this comprehensive approach that we are uh, presenting. Uh, if you need a job, so you come here, you receive training, which are, um, we offer full scholarships for clients that qualify. So they come, receive training, and after three months, they are placed in full-time jobs, completely transforming their situation of unemployment into full employment. If you are interested in opening a business, we have a beautiful new infrastructure with industrial equipment, storage facilities, we have mentors, we have content, a curriculum that will train you how to open a business. And when you are ready, we will prepare you to access that seed money and finally guide you through the, the market so you can sell your products either at a grocery store or a farmer's market. Our programs are bilingual. So if you're a barrier or obstacle is a language, we can train you in Spanish and teach you English at the same time through this app that we have developed. So we are creating equity through empowering them to make their own money, to, to gain and regain this dignity that, and, and feel that they are worthy, that they are respected and that they belong. We just heard about the importance of a human-first, holistic design that promotes justice instead of just maintaining charity as a way to practice racial equity. Let's learn how COVID-19 has impacted Latino communities in this program. I've seen um, all the, the efforts and sacrifices and successes that our clients had completely gone. So the jobs that they had, the savings accounts that they used to have, the health insurance that they obtained through their new jobs, uh, the food that they were able to put on their tables because of this new income has, has, has disappeared. All that has disappeared. Um, in addition to uh, having schools closing or school closings with millions of meals that were subsidized meals provided to children also gone or very little of them are accessible now. Uh, our clients have lost that career path that they started. They have lost their businesses. So we did what we did as an organization. We took this great pause and created an internal uh, risk management task force to analyze all these uh, new new challenges and new realities, the gaps, and uh, we have seen, we have looked at our clients and, and our communities at large as kind of like a patient in an emergency room that needs assistance in so many different ways. So once again, how we can tackle that enormous need that our communities now have. And we, once again, believe that it is a collective approach. So talking to my CDFI colleagues, community development financial institutions, how more flexible they can be to provide these seed money so our clients could come to our facilities and start producing the next day. Um, another challenge that we have identified with other communities uh, of immigrants 
particularly with the Muslim community, is that uh, based on their religious and uh, cultural practices, they uh, they eat this certain type of meals, in this case is halal meals, that were not provided at food banks or different other community places where food or meals were provided to people in need. So there is uh, an opportunity there for La Cocina through our catering service to provide this more diverse and culturally and religiously oriented meals that will uh, serve these communities and will complement what um, other um, groups are doing for mental health services, for legal advice, for um, access to funds to cover rent. So we are once again, uh, Monica and uh, Marlisa, joining forces with other groups so we can really tackle these a patient in the emergency room to provide them with immediate assistance. That is one side of the, yes. Yeah, Bethy, I think you're able to, and I think the reason you're a resource is the fact that you put people first, they're at the center, right? As you say, um, you know, they're at the center of your service. What, regardless if they're who they are, if they're Latinos or Muslim um, communities, um, because you're able to center them and understand what they need, um, you're able to provide them food um, in a dignified manner, but also to ensure and recognize um, that this is the type of food that they need to continue to practice their faith and their culture. Absolutely. So, Marlisa, you have anything else you'd like to add or, or questions? Yeah, I guess um, I'm just curious because I'm sure a lot of folks who are listening in might say, oh, that's, that's nice. I wonder, you know, how she got to that point. So, can you just share with our audience, what does centering look like for you all? Is it... Um, I'm sure it's probably built on relationship building, right? Because that's part of racial equity. <laughs> uh, and it's probably built on trust and uh, making space to, to, to ask and to listen and to be humble and to shift as an organization as, as you need to, to, to meet the needs of the communities that you're walking in solidarity with. Can you just give a little background of how your organization arrived to this point of practicing racial equity uh, to be responsive to communities of color who you're serving? Of course. So two sides to that uh, question. And uh, so I'm Latina. I'm originally from Peru. I moved to the US not too long ago, 13 years ago. Uh, so I, am, um, I have the same color of their skin. I have the same accent. Uh, and I have gone through uh, similar experiences as an immigrant as well. Uh, trying to, or working hard to have my voice heard. My staff are 90% uh, Latinas, uh, and same thing is reflected at my board of directors. We have uh, Latinas, Latinos, African Americans, uh, white uh, men and women, uh, and even uh, just not too long ago, we have uh, an Asian uh, lady joining the board. We wanted to, uh, to 
keep building this credibility that we know what we are talking about, that we are or have experienced in the past similar challenges to uh, that we have overcome when working in community. Um, and then on the other side is um, we are in constant communication with our clients and our former clients. We use different systems such as just interviews and surveys. I remember we have at the very beginning um, just in order to build credibility and to share with them our that our intentions were honest and, and transparent visit their, their homes and meet, meeting their families. Uh, one thing to highlight is that it's important. Um, in our countries, in, this, in the South American and Central American countries, and in our culture as a whole, philanthropy really doesn't exist as um, strongly and uh, supported as it is in the United States. Um, so for our community to believe that someone comes to you to help you without any second intentions and that you won't uh, try to get something out of them in the in the future we had at the beginning just very interesting and, and even weird interactions with with clients where they said when are you going to charge me for the services that you are providing when are you gonna are you gonna take part of my salary when you place me in this job because how are you gonna get paid how why are you doing this for me so building credibility um putting together uh programs that really meet them where they are understanding their needs and like in any other um space you have to do what you said and then that ends up being uh, a natural progression of trust and, uh, and that's how we have build, built partnerships and, and recognition, as Monica mentioned at the beginning, national and international recognition for the model, for the approach, for the results, and for the way we monitor and, and evaluate results. We have a, a large uh, manual with indicators and um, metrics that measure outputs and out outcomes for up to two years after our intervention with these programs. So this, uh, through five years of work, um, Marisa has demonstrated that um, our model works and uh, has opened many doors and made us or helped us expand our services from the Latino community and in 2018, serving the rest of the community uh, in need of the services that we provide. I just wanted to thank you for just sharing all of that. That's a whole breadth of, of, of knowledge. And um, one thing that, and there was a lot of things that stuck out to me. I would say the first thing that stuck out to me is um, the fact that the person who's leading it, right, has that personal connection, not only as a person of color, but also as a woman of color, right? And you've uh, mentioned uh, before just the distinction between Latinos versus Latinas, right? There, there's a difference, you know, for being a woman of color. Um, so there's that, and then you have the experience of yourself being an immigrant and going through the systems um, when you came uh, to live in the United States. And um, I think that that point can't be can't be lost. I would say to me that's a takeaway for the service providers that are 
listening to this podcast as um, the importance of uh, centering the leadership of those with lived experience of racism and the intersection that that has with sexism and possibly classism and other things um, based on the community that's being served, right? I think that's so and incredibly important. Um, and another thing that stuck out to me um, was the fact that your staff and your board represent the community being served and how often that doesn't actually take place. And it sounds like you all were very intentional um, about that, um, which kind of begs the, the, the question of uh, staff racial representation and the difference of that versus just uh, mere racial diversity, right? Because being racially representative is important and making sure that that's not just at the lower staff, but it's also at the, um, the higher level executives, right? But then also at the board of directors, like you mentioned. So I just wanna say thank you and lift those two things up as major takeaways for our audience. But now this is the moment to work uh, to improve the system, to uh, form coalitions of leaders from all these different spaces um, to advocate for systemic transformation of change. And it seems like this crisis has given the entire world the permission to create, the permission to innovate in, in, in programs, in policies, in laws, in regulations. So this is our time. I, I'm, I strongly believe that we have to take advantage of this crisis to really come out with proposals and, and ideas and plans that can completely redesign and re-engineer the way we have been feeding our clients and helping them obtain, obtain jobs and accessing capital, all these different very crucial uh, spaces that have been for so long strong barriers, but that we have now the opportunity to rethink and fix. We just heard about the importance of centering the needs and the leadership of Latinas and other communities of color when designing and implementing programs in a racially equitable way. Stay tuned for a brief recap of today's episode. my gosh those are the three words that i have that was amazing monica oh my gosh i like my head is exploding i i don't know that i have room for all of the information insights and great words of wisdom that were shared with us i i don't i don't know how i'm gonna i think i need a vacation so i can go away and just process all of the great information that was shared. <laughs> Tell me about it. Oh my gosh. Let's start with uh, Uriel and Lionel. I mean, that was rich. Uh, some of the main takeaways that that I have um, is, oh my gosh, where do you start? I think 
One of the main takeaways that I have is just the importance of uh, looking at historical trauma, right? This is a new term for a lot of us. And uh, essentially what, what they really shared and reinforced was the fact that our agricultural system is built was built in slavery, right? Um, exactly. When, I, I, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I could not agree with you more. I think what we, we sometimes silo various experiences and communities. And I think it would be fair to say that the farm worker experience is a legacy of slavery and a consequence of um, that system of slavery. So I, I could not agree with you more. Yeah, I yeah, I completely agree. And I think what this what this shows is just the importance of if we're serious about applying a racial equity lens into policies, then we need to be serious about looking at the history and where things are rooted. Um, in this case, with as with a lot of other things, it's uh, rooted in 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 history of slavery of black people and now it's just transitioned to uh, continue to encompass communities of color but mainly impacting brown right latino indigenous still black right but primarily let's just be real latino communities and um that's important what that also highlighted to me was also to um that our economy, you know, and it kind of brings me back to the first episode that we had with Rosa, where she was saying that we have a colonial economy and, you know, and speaking with Lionel and um, it, it helped me, uh, it helped to reinforce that, you know, the fact that farm workers, they don't have the basic rights. And when you're thinking about um, just the protections for workers, um, it's no surprise that farm workers, um, you know, th these are majority uh, people of color, right? In this case, we're looking at high levels of Latino farm workers, that this is not by coincidence, but by design, also the the workers right, that are COVID. least protected, yeah, that are least protected. Right. And I think but the other piece that I was so inspired by is the leadership and the, you know, the, of both Uriel and understanding his role as an ally. Yes. And I, you know, in terms of Lionel and his leadership to want to stand up and be a leader in his community and to lift up his community, um, that was so inspirational. I mean, recognizing that um, he was certainly going to be the David in this David and Goliath story, but really impressed by the leadership and the um, strategic alliances that they've been able to build with consumers and students. I think that was really impressive about how they were able to um, empower themselves and to use their agency to um, find justice as well. Yeah, and I think something that I like is the fact that um, even though uh, Uriel is a person of color himself, right, he's a Latino, he understood what his role was and what it was not, right? And his role was not to be the leader, even though he used his leadership. And those are two different things, 
months, right? And he made it very clear even within the interview and also too just, um, you know, with, with, with their work that they stand as, um, alongside the Immokalee farm workers and the Immokalee farm workers are themselves the leaders. And it's because of the centering of their voices, of their leadership, of their expertise, right? That they're in the driver's seat. And instead it's a, it's, it's something along the lines of walking in solidarity with, right? He said, I don't speak for Lionel. I speak with. Right. I loved that. Right. And that's the work I, of racial equity. It truly is. Yeah, that absolutely is is right. And I think, you know, Rosa really hit a lot of those points too in our in our conversation with her, just about the history and um, the cultural aspects of of equity, racial equity, and how various communities really um, as they try and work towards racial equity, um, also addressing and acknowledging um, the history that comes with that. Yeah. So let's get on to uh, to Fathi. She was wow. really phenomenal. Wow. I wonder if she walks around with a cape. <laughs> so she was just phenomenal and, and what I really appreciated about her work was the economic empowerment aspect of food security and the food sector of looking at it through a different perspective of really trying to empower um, low-income communities and you know I think again she fully acknowledged um, not only the barriers um, that exist um, for um, communities of color, but the economic barriers of accessing capital, that racial wealth gap piece of having to work with CDFIs. And, um, you know, I think she just covered so much ground. What a rich conversation. Yeah, I completely agree. I appreciated that, um, you know, similar to our other uh, speakers in this series, she's walking the walk. And I loved the fact that um, she is a Latina who is leading uh, this work, right? And that to me is just so, that's important. I, you know, it's just, it just is. Uh, we, we need to make um, space for, for leaders of color. That was, that was a takeaway. Um, I think another takeaway was just intentionality. Her staff, she said um, that her staff is racially rep uh, representative. Yeah. Um, and I think she said like 90% people of color. That's amazing. That should be the goal. <laughs> that should be a right. goal for sure. And I think, you know, her passion and how she really centered people first, the community first, her clients first. She talked about them being a patient, you know, and understanding um, how COVID has really impacted them and how are they going to treat the patient. Um, came with so much compassion. And, you know, I really did appreciate um, her focus of that and really trying to um, make sure that she was putting them first. And I think, you know, she talked about the Muslim community and ensuring that they have the meals they need 
um, to continue to practice their faith and and you know ensure that even during this time um, that was something that the community could still have bringing dignity um, during this time I think is important and um, she really does walk the walk yeah that she does well I'm so grateful that we were able to do this series I'm so happy we were able to kick off the last episode with this great content same here and um, I hope and I think that all of our listeners will feel the same way that they think that you know they've walked away some with some really great insights and information that they can think about and how this will apply to their organizations and their practice and their work of trying to achieve racial equity. You've just listened to a brief recap of today's episode. This series is titled Race, Hunger, and COVID-19 and is sponsored by the Racial Equity and Hunger National Learning Network. Learn more about the network, including how to access additional tools, blogs, and webinars, and tune in to future podcasts at racialequityhunger.org.